Hello, Cardinal fans. Welcome back to the Pitchers Hit 8th podcast. It's been a while, but we are undertaking episode number 12 of the Pitchers Hit 8th podcast. As always, I'm joined by Josh, also from Pitchers Hit 8th. Hello, Josh. Hello, Nick. We didn't want to uh, interrupt the whole 12 and 12 thing. That's why we decided to postpone it until 2013. Yeah, that didn't really work out so well. Well, that's why we're back. We couldn't, you know, we got to change it up a little bit. Great point. We have a great guest this evening, and uh, we're just going to get right into it. There's no need to uh, go round and round about what has happened since our last podcast. The Cardinals made a run deep into the postseason and unfortunately fell short of their goal of winning back-to-back World Series. But we're moving forward, and we have a great guest for this evening's show. We will be talking with Mike Farron from Sirius XM Radio. He hosts the Power Alley Show, co-hosts the Power Alley Show on MLB Network Radio with Sirius XM with his co-host Jim Duquette. We really look forward to talk to Mike tonight. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the recent passing of all-time Cardinal great Stan Musial, We'll talk about Jason Mott's new contract, and Mike actually had Jason on his show earlier and uh, give us a little insight on that. We'll also talk about an Adam Wainwright extension, possible Adam Wainwright extension with the Cardinals, and then look a little bit more at the Cardinals' competition in the NL Central going forward into the 2013 season. Josh, what am I missing? Well, we, of course, had your uh, Kyle Loesch talk, a lot of Kyle Loesch talk, given that he was a big part in the Cardinals' run last year and just happens to still be without a team for the 2013 season. Yeah, so we'll talk about Kyle Loesch, too. Hopefully you'll enjoy this segment with Mike Farron. Uh, we pulled our usual wool-over-the-eyes deal with him and told him we were going to talk to him for about a half an hour, and he was gracious enough to give us 50 minutes or, or a little bit more. And uh, we hope you enjoy. We will take a little break. Josh, a break? Uh, we may, we take a little break. We, we want everybody to uh, look forward to what's about to come. We'll take a break, and we'll be back with our guest, Mike Farron from SiriusXM Radio. Pitchers Hit 8th podcast. We are joined currently by the very gracious enough to join us, Mr. Mike Farron, host on MLB Network Radio from Sirius XM. Mike, thanks again so much for joining us tonight. Well, it's a pleasure. I'm always glad to talk Cardinal baseball. So We'll keep that in mind. And and maybe you won't be as glad as by the time we're done with you. <laughs> You never. I gotta say though, Nick, I, I gotta I gotta take umbrage right away. You have some very angry followers on Twitter. 
an innocuous comment out there Saturday night about you know Stan Musial passing, and Musial, you know, historically when you look at the numbers, is one of the great hitters of all time, and I don't think it gets talked about enough. And I said, you you, you look at the list in National League history, and the best four players are probably Musial, Aaron, Mays, and Bonds. And Barry Bonds' name set off a ton of listeners. One young lady who I wouldn't kiss my mother with that mouth with some of the things that she said to me. I was really stunned by that. Apparently, Cardinal fans do not like Barry Bonds. Yeah, we're as as a group, we can tend to be a bit of a um, what would you call it? One blind eye type of bunch. <laughs> that's that's a very good way to put it. Nick. Um, and, and I and I say that uh, so deftly as to hopefully deflect some of those angry responses to me after this gets posted on our website. But there's there's a lot of uh, gosh, I'm trying to come up with as many cliches as I can here. The uh, what what's good for the goose, not for the gander, I guess mm-hmm. maybe is appropriate. And uh, yeah, I've I've seen what you're talking about, but perfect segue into what we wanted to talk to you about first obviously cardinal nation as a whole uh, a sad weekend for us and we mourn the passing of of not even arguably clearly the the greatest cardinal of all time stan musial and you mentioned there's a lot of folks and I hazard to say that this is not just a Cardinal fan's opinion, that he really was underappreciated. So I, I know being a little bit more detached from rah-rah, birds on the bat, Cardinal Red all the time, I'm curious to, to get your full viewpoint on Musial. For crying out loud, a guy who had to be alternated onto the uh, all-century team a few mm-hmm. years back. Uh, just curious, your thoughts on, and I know this is a broad topic, Stan Musial, the player and the person that he was. Well, well you know, I, I think that Stan Musial was such a great person that a lot of times people forget. And I think that this was probably the case with you know after you retweeted me the other night with, with Cardinal fans, is that it becomes very de- de- difficult to detach Stan Musial, the person, from Stan Musial, the player. And Stan Musial, the person, was obviously like one of the ten greatest human beings who's ever lived, right? I mean, that's you know, I mean, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Chicago. I've got family that's Cardinal fans. I mean, I, I you know, listen, Stan Musial is Stan Musial is a, a, was a prince among men, right? But I almost think that to some degree, the focus on that makes you lose sight of how truly dominant and not just good, a dominant offensive player. He didn't hit below 300 in a season until he was 37. Uh, he was a, a, a guy who nine times led his league in runs created plus, which is J- Bill James' statistic that tries to show overall value. The only other guy who's done that is Barry Bonds, who, you know, whether you like Bonds or not, was the most dominant player of the last 30 years without question. You know, Musial, the player on the field at four different positions. I mean, it's amazing how much it was split between right and left and first specifically. He even played center field on a pretty good Cardinals team in one season as a regular center fielder. This was an elite level player. And I think that in part because he retired in 1963 and in part because Stan Musial was such a legendary human being 
that we've forgotten how great Stan Musial, the baseball player, was. And really, in the end, I mean, you're, you're, I, I'm, I mean, I don't think it's any shame to – Musial may have been – Musial, when he ret- retired, was easily the best National League player in history. And when, when you add in, you know, Mays, Aaron, Bonds, beyond that, I mean, he's still on the short list of the team photo. And I'm not sure that, that you know, I'm not sure that that's something that gets talked about enough when remembering him, the player, because again, he was in the end, a much better person, even than he was a player. And, and really that's what's important in the long run. I, I think it's fascinating that you say that because obviously there was no lack of material to read this weekend following mm-hmm. Stan's passing that, like you said, the majority of it, Joe Posnanski, great piece. And, and again, across just everywhere that you go, people writing about Musial and everybody had their own story. And, you know, it's a story about talking to somebody when he was 80 years old and, and them asking him, what do you think you'd hit if you were playing today, Stan? And he says 275. He says, well, you know, only 275. He says, yeah, well, what do you expect? I'm 80. Right. And and his 71-year marriage to, to Lil, his high school sweetheart, and, uh, you know, the story that uh, Posnanski told about Harry Carey watching him walk out of the stadium all slumped over, totally beat up after a doubleheader, sees a bunch of kids or, or fans or whoever, probably a mixture of both around his car, immediately straightens up and signs every single autograph. Mm-hmm. And Robin Roberts tells a story about that Musial was the only one who never disappointed a fan by not signing an autograph and all these things. And the stats are kind of sprinkled into that as part of a story. And here he is statistically still as you say, one of the greatest players of all time still holds, you know, still within the top 10 of many statistical leaderboards in, in major league baseball that I wrote in, in my remembrance of Stan got, how could you be that person? You know, what, what a person that we could all strive to be. Right. Right. I mean, just, just to look at some of the, the black ink on it, you know, six times he led his league in runs scored. Uh, I think it was five times, six times he led the league in hits. Um, it was another what, eight times that he led the league in doubles, five times he led the league in triples. You know, he led the league in watch. We walked over a hundred times, three times. I mean, he, he, he walked through almost three times as many times as he struck out over the course of his career. You know, his high strikeout season was in his second to last year at age 41. He struck out 46 times in 505 plate appearances. And we talk about DiMaggio, you know, with, with a great contact rate. I mean, that was the, that was, you know, usual to T. And he walked. I mean, this, this is the perfect, this is the Bill Jamesian, um, the Bill Jamesian offensive player, if ever there was one, right? Seven times led the league in batting average, six times in, in on base, seven in slugging, seven, seven on base percentage, six times in total bases. The, it was a really remarkable career on the field. And, you know, in addition, you know, in his first six seasons, he won the MVP award three times. And then the next three years was the runner up. I mean, it, it is unbelievable how good a player Stan Musial was. And I'm not sure that, you know, outside of Bonds, and again, I, I understand how Cardinal fans can be upset because you know, <laughs> Barry Bonds is a pariah socially, but think about, t- detach the emotion from it. Think about Bonds, the offensive player. 
That's what Stan Musial looked like. And, you know, none of us were in this conversation were alive when Musial retired in 63. That's the closest we could come. Hey, Mike, that's a great point. Like, I just was curious, given your you know broader view, obviously, of baseball as a whole that Nick and I have, is there anybody else that you can even think, not only maybe the, the one team, but is there anybody that's still as active a participant? And my dad, that's what he told me. He said opening day will not be the same. Is there anybody else in baseball that you can even, you know, maybe even have a guess means as much to their organization as what Stan did to the Cardinals? Yeah, I think the closest is probably, um, you know, living in Baltimore now, I, I get a full appreciation from him. I mean, you think about it this way. You know, he grew up in Aberdeen, which is about, you know, 35 minutes outside of Baltimore. His dad was in the Orioles organization as a coach. You know, he came up in the Oriole way. He was the star player, still lives in the community. You know, he's still ubiquitous. He, I mean, I, I bet you if you were to take a poll of, of fans in Baltimore to name their favorite Oriole or the most recognizable Oriole, you know, Adam Jones would probably fall a distant second behind Cal. Um, you know, he is, he is in the community. He works with children. You know, the Rick and Baseball Academies do a lot of work. And, and certainly, you know, some of it has been in for-profit, uh, you know, um, ventures, and there's nothing, nothing wrong with that because, I mean, he's been a, a spokesman for just about every business in Baltimore, too. That's about the closest I could come. And, and again, it becomes, you know, the, the difference, though, is, guys, you know, Stan wasn't in St. Louis. Cal's kind of always been Baltimore, you know, in a way, in that he's grown up here. Um, so, and I think that you look at the class in which he handles himself basis and I think that that's you know he kind of emulates mutual in that regard but I'm not sure that even here there's that connection to Cal the same way there was Cardinal fans in Musial who you know I, I always felt like Musial was a little like the Beatles right he walks into a room and people start screaming and crying so, I mean, and not, not in like not in a horror horror filled way like in excitement and I always felt like Musial was that guy, and you know Cal certainly has that kind of, has a presence, a huge presence in Baltimore, but I'm not sure it's quite to the level that stands. Maybe in another thirty years it will be. The one last thing that I'll say about Stan Musial, and I know that this is not unique to ball players from that era. Every, not everyone, but a lot of guys went off to the war, and, and Musial went off to the war for one season uh, during his career. And I told my wife, who admittedly is still becoming a baseball fan since she and I have been together, and, yep. and still becoming a Cardinal fan, or well, <laughs> I, I should say she's a Cardinal fan because becoming a baseball fan, I, I didn't have to wash any residual uh, loyalties out of her, but uh, <laughs> I was telling her the other night, because you know, it was obviously important to me. We were having a discussion about Musial, and I said, yeah, he went off to war, and he came back the next year and won the MVP. And she says to me, how is that even possible? I said, well, ballplayers went off to war and came back and, and had great careers still after it. But to directly answer your question, I have no idea. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's kind of like, you know, Musial was fortunate in that he only lost, you know, one year to the service. Yes. 
three Williams, you know, volunteered to go back to Korea. I mean, th- th- that's that's something that's worth taking a look at. Go go and average out Ted Williams' career for his prime, and then throw those numbers in the seasons he missed in military service, and you're starting to talk about a guy who's you know the, the first number of the home run total is a seven. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I think that that's, you know, that was unique to those players. You know, some of it, and this is not to diminish, you know, what happened in, you know, certainly guys that came back in, you know, 44 and 45, which was not something that, that Stan had the benefit of. I mean, 45 was his last year. There were still enough players that were off at war that um, that it had a huge impact. In fact, the, the, the Cubs winning the pennant in 45 was – um, was not a team that was kind of your traditional pennant winner. And one of the big reasons why Detroit won the World Series that year, I think it was Hal Newhouser had just come back from war and was a huge part of, uh, of you know, what they were able to It was either Hal Newhouser or Virgil Trucks. I can't remember now. But one of the key pitchers had just come back and gave them a big boost in the postseason. So it's a very um, disjointed time in baseball's history. Uh, but – to come back in 1946 to not just you know play every game um, and you know hit 365 in the process you know as a 25 year old you know that really catapulted Stan Musial to the next level and I, I'm not sure that it's something that we can relate to now I, now you know the, the thing is if he had been 35 maybe it would have been a different story but as a young man maybe using losing a year from the development standpoint doesn't change as much but it's still it's an amazing story and you know again I mean, it's a big reason I have the Congressional Medal of Freedom and he is who he is I mean who his legacy is is what it is too and um, you know it's I don't think that there's enough good words that can possibly be printed about who Stan Musial was, especially as a player. Again, this is tinged a little bit by Cardinal Red glasses, but I would challenge anyone across the globe to, to, to besmirch the good name of Stan Musial. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't think anybody should, it, it's not worth the effort because it, <laughs> it, you can't do it. This is one of the finest people that ever lived I, on and off. That sounds like a great quip for a show title. On that note, thank you, Mike, for your feedback on that. I know that, uh, like I said, there's uh, there's obviously a clear love for Stan in St. Louis and amongst Cardinal fans, and I, I think it's always good for us to it, – it's one of those situations where you get those those fan glasses on and – a lot of times you get need to get knocked back by a dose of perspective, and and in this case, I keep looking for it, and I keep getting people saying the same thing. So, that's that's uh, a, a great perspective, and we appreciate it. Uh, moving right along, I know that you talked about this on Power Alley this morning because I saw your your tweet about it, but the Cardinals recently were able to come to agreement with their closer, Jason Mott. Two years, twelve million bucks. As I recall, I think there's some performance bonuses in there, and as Cardinal fans are are want to do, there's been some consternation, if you believe it, about this contract. About they're paying him more than he even asked for in arbitration, and et cetera, et cetera. But from my perspective, you take a variable out with another arbitration year. You give him a little more than he wanted this year. If he has a good year this year. It's probably a little less than he's going to get next year. Uh, maybe it's probably rehashed from what you and, and 
Jim Duquette talked about this morning, but your thoughts on the Jason Mott deal? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it may seem like, at least in terms of average annual value, because it's about two years and $12 million, that it's more than he asked for this year. But you have to remember that this is – now, if, if I, can I get technically baseball contract nerdy with you for a second? We'd love you to. So, so in the arbitration process, what comes it, – it's like the one time that you can use comps and not get, you know, um, some scouting people to roll their eyes at you. <laughs> I'll make sure Goldstein's not listening. No, the, 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 the late Kevin Goldstein, that's what I like to call him. And <laughs> into a baseball front office. Uh, they, they, what, uh, what happens is that you get compared to everybody who is in your class of service time. So the number on Mott probably will look, if he was asking for 5.5, five, it may look like it's 5.2 or 4.9 or something like that this year so that it doesn't skew it out of whack for others who are in the negotiations in there. You know, one of the big, I'll use a great example in this. One of the big problems with Hunter Pence's contract with the Giants, and he's making $13.8 million a year, is because he has a super two, he won an arbitration case in a huge number because the Astros didn't argue their side. They, they didn't put themselves in a position where the midpoint could be something that they fell on. And by, by moving their number as low as they did, they made it an easy win for Pence, and in the end, he's reaped the benefits of it. So you're trying to keep kind of contract control when you're talking about numbers in arbitration cases. So while Mott's number is going to look like, and for the purposes of, say, a luxury tax, it's going to be equated at $6 million a year, what ends up happening is that it's probably closer to five and seven or four eight and seven two because that's what would happen with the arbitration raises so i wouldn't worry too much on that that just kind of becomes you know you start talking about midpoints endpoints and how to be able to make those deals i think more importantly they're in a position where they've signed him for two years and it's given them enough flexibility because the number won't be ridiculous next season that if in fact they decide Trevor Rosenthal is the closer of the future instead of a starter that Mott's a guy that they could trade because the seven million dollar contract or whatever it is close to that isn't going to be unseemly for a team to pick up a guy who you know this year led the National League in saves. Sure and I guess from my perspective if it's five and seven even at those numbers I think particularly for a club like the Cardinals who is in a position that no matter the number having a hard number to focus on from year to year cost control is very important to the Cardinals so even if it's whatever the number is if they know that they have a number going into next year versus having to go through the arbitration process with Mott again there's value in that to the organization as well as Again, if he has a similar year in 2013 as he did in 2012, seven might be cheap. Yeah, I know, and I think that that's you know that's kind of where you get into with guaranteed contracts. You know, I talked to Jason this morning, and he was very happy to have the deal done. I mean, you know, from his standpoint, he's like, you know, we came to him with a number, and they were open to doing a multi-year deal. And certainly, I mean, you guys have seen how important he's been to the bullpen the last two seasons in his evolution as a reliever. And even if he doesn't, you know, say he should stumble, and I don't think he's going to. And I think this is a guy who's, you know, certainly he's, you know, if you believe in a guy needing to have stones and seeds to be a closer, he's, <laughs> he's, he, he's not phased by pitching in the ninth inning. None of that stuff bothers him. So, you know, 
in addition to the tangible of the 98-mile-an-hour fastball, he's got the intangibles that kind of go with that role. That's uh, a very low risk to sign this guy to a two-year contract. You know, the, the question becomes what happens when he breaches free agency. And as a team, if you really feel comfortable with a guy, you know, you're trying to buy out a year or two, especially when you're Mott, and you, 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 with a guy like Mott who's going to be, what, 31 this year, that you might be willing to – to go a year in there and try and grab a guy. But then again, you know, the Cardinals haven't shown a particularly large willingness to spend exorbitant amounts, amounts of money on relief pitching. And in fact, I think that's really been over the last couple of years, one of John Mazzaloc's great strengths is that he's built really good bullpen on the cheap. Yeah. And I think how's the old saying go, everybody's a starter until they're not. And, and the Cardinals are clearly, employing that strategy and like you said they've got such a wealth right now of of power right-handed arms that i think you're absolutely right that you go through the motions with Mott, you know what you have with him you see how the rotation's going to shake out clearly with question marks going forward with chris carpenter with uh, hopefully an extension for adam wainwright but but the question mark is there that these guys are going to fall into one or two places you know the Shelby Millers, the Trevor Rosenthal's. They're they're going to start or they're going to relieve. And if they, if a Wainwright extension gets worked out and all these other things fall into place, then they've got to have somewhere to go with Rosenthal. And like you say, Mott's, in baseball terms at least, no spring chicken um, because he got a late start. So I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I've got my fan glasses on again. I think it's a prudent move. No, I do too. I mean, I, 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 no, I'm with you. I mean, I don't think I, there's nothing in that for a guy that you know led the league in saves. And again, we can you know debate the merits of the save statistic anytime you want to, and we can have that discussion because I, I get a little bit irritated with my <laughs> through usage as most guys who have have some level of you know uh, of you know statistical a- analytical background do, but. I, I think you know, when you look at what the numbers are for that guy and for a guy who's uh, take the same time, who is an effective relief pitcher, as effective as he is, you know, you're not giving him four years. You're si- you've signed him through your controllable years. It makes the most sense. And you know what? When you start paying guys at 31, 32, 33, especially from a position change standpoint and from guys who, you know, who, who as they begin to age, you know, obviously then the recovery time begins to, to become a problem, you, you feel like, if you were to lock him up for too many of those years at this point, uh, you're really overpaying him, and that's where the mistake right. is made. This is this is nothing. I mean, we, we forget, you know, take it even take it isolated in a bubble. Take it outside of whatever happens with Wainwright and the kids and where they go in the rotation and any of this. You just got a back end reliever for two years and twelve million bucks, and a guy who's been you know effective in the postseason and been an all star. Fine, sold, done. It's not going to affect the payroll overall. It's not going to hinder the Cardinals' ability to spend money anyplace else. Let's move on to the to the, the next moment to worry about something else because I, I really think it's a good deal for them. Right, and that's that's what it ultimately boils down to for me too is that, again, like you say, you kind of remove yourself from the situation. This is what he got in a controlled situation, in arbitration. If Matt was a free agent this year, who's banging down his door? So. I mean, I think he listen. He would have had a much easier time finding a job than Raphael Soriano. <laughs> I mean, 
you know, this isn't to knock you know, Soriano, but I, I mean, I think teams are getting better at how they're valuing back end relievers. But somebody would have given them three years, and somebody oh, yeah. would have given them, you know, what, what did Soriano get? Fourteen million a year, you know, even when you figure in the deferments, you know, I mean, it's, heck, he might have been good enough that you give him a qualifying offer, you know, if Mott were going into free agency, they sure. and you know, hedging. Sure. Okay, we'll take him back at thirteen million, but if not, you know, there's a good chance that he's going to get a multi-year deal somewhere, and and he probably would have been in the thirty thirty-five million dollar range, and he'd been a free agent this year, absolutely. So it's yeah. it, it's a no-brainer, and and that's where the arbitration clock works in favor of the team is that you've got a very very good pitcher who, because of his service time, you're able to save money on. Hey, Mike. Speaking of uh, pitchers that you know not only have postseason experience, but since we're with the theme of extensions, obviously Cardinal Nation is a little leery of the give and take, the back and forth, if you will, with Adam Wainwright. Uh, personally, I get the feeling that both sides want to get a deal done. I think you know you hit it on the head. The Cardinals are locking up some of their guys like Mott now where they kind of maybe have an idea of where they're going money-wise in the future are you in the the camp that you think that a, a deal is going to get done and if so what do you think the terms are going to be for st louis well let me let me start this because i'm still we're, we're what's today today's january 23rd 2013 i still think Pujols is resigning in st louis so i'm still, I'm still <laughs> you know i like wasn't meant to be a cruel joke. It's just that I, I felt really good about that. I feel every bit as good about Wainwright going back to St. Louis. So take that for what it's worth. Um, I, I'm not sure that I can see either either side really wanting to be without. Um, the one question with Wainwright is obviously, you know, is going to be age. He's going to be 32 next season. So how deep are you willing to go on an extension? Are you willing to do four years? And if you're willing to do four years, what's the asking price on a guy like Wainwright? You know, let's use let's use um, let's say Edwin Jackson as a comp, who the Cubs just signed, right? Who's not nearly. And I'm not trying to compare these two guys as pitchers because Edwin Jackson isn't even close to being in the same league if we're at him. Yeah, careful, Farron. You're going to get some nasty tweets. Right. I'm already. I'm already. But what's what I'm. <laughs> you know how those Cubs fans are. Oh, I know. Just don't listen. I grew up around that. That's a that's a curse that you don't want. The, the curse isn't on the team. The curse is on Cub fans. They've been rooting for um, four and fifty two is what Edwin Jackson gets, right? So you're probably looking at you know realistically, even if Wainwright puts up numbers similar to what he did last year, and I do think he's going to be better. And really, you know, he had about a two month stretch second half where he pitched much better than what those numbers were. He looked a lot more like. Adam Wainwright, you know, you're probably looking at a guy that's 17, 18 million dollars a year. So, you know, this is like four and 68, something like that, four and 70. Is that where the number comes in? If so, if you're the Cardinals, you've got to kind of feel comfortable about it because, you know, you know that that's where salaries are going and where you're going to go. And if you're Wainwright, you know, that's maybe you're willing to take a little bit less because, you know, you don't want to have to take your stuff out of Pappy's. And you want to be able to stay in St. Louis. So I, I think. I think in the end, you know, it's a lot easier to do this deal because you don't have the whole. You know, hey, uh, listen, I want a fair market contract this time, and uh, you know, this is the best player in the game, and so he's going to get X, you know, number of years. And if A. Rod got it, you know, why shouldn't he? 
you know, there's not really that comp in in here for Wainwright because he's going to be 32. He's going to be starting on the back end of his career. And, you know, the, there's the numbers that are going to get thrown around are probably, I mean, it's going to be in excess of $60 million, I would think, and probably in excess of 65 when, when you get to it with him. But I think that that's probably a number that, you know, he's comfortable with. And, and I, I just don't, I, he's such a great fit for the team and for the, the organization and for the community. I just don't see Wainwright leaving. And I think that he's, you know, I, I think in the end something will get done. And I wouldn't be surprised if it gets done before spring training is over. And you know what? If it drags into the season, I don't see him as being the kind of guy that gets distracted by that either. You know, I think it's yeah, fine. We'll just keep talking. Whenever we get it done, we get it done. And I, and I think that they will get it done. There's already been discussion, uh, both from player and club, that no artificial deadlines, no. Right. Pulling into camp on day one and having the swarm of reporters talking about how that was your deadline for the contract and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I'm I'm with you. I, that that relates to me as a, as a sense of confidence, kind of on both sides, that we're not going to put up these artificial the Pujols thing. You know, to to open up a sore wound, the the Pujols thing. I feel like in the previous seasons he wanted to get a deal done and by the time that that deadline was set the the bad blood was already so deep that um i was as optimistic as you mike and and i think that the behind the scenes things maybe that a lot of us never saw and you certainly would know more than i about that but um i i think that bad blood there was was very deep after a few years and and Pujols feeling disrespected as the quotes came out afterwards. But with Wainwright, the talk is all want to be here. Club wants him to be there. And from the Cardinals winter warm-up this past weekend, there was a lot of talk about Chris Carpenter. Yeah, maybe he pitches another year or two, but eventually he's not going to be around. And then, yeah, they've got this wealth of young pitching, but who's around to shepherd them if you will and i don't mean to be mean that to be a bad pun but they need that veteran presence i think in the clubhouse and i think mosaic knows that the big question for me is we see the big huge tv contracts the dodgers are you know going wild like they might as well be based in vegas or something and uh contracts escalating matt kane is the comp du jour for way a Wainwright extension you know I mean are we going to approach I know you were throwing numbers around on a four-year deal fours four and 74 and 80 I mean realistically we're looking at probably 20 million annual average annual value for Wainwright right I don't, th- I don't think 20 I, no? I think that and only because because of the age I mean I think when you look at Kane he's signing that deal as what a 26 year old right so right and- I think when you start to look at where Wainwright is on the on the progression, you know there there aren't any thirty two year old right handed pitchers that are getting hundred million dollar contracts. You know, Granky Granky's what twenty seven, right? I mean, the, the the nine figure contract for a guy who's thirty two, if he's left handed, maybe you see it. You know, maybe it's like the Sabathia extension that he got in New York, and I guess he was thirty one, but but. You don't really see that with 32-year-old righties, so I think the numbers become a little more, more manageable. 
Um, you know, I do think the money in the game is obviously changing the the numbers. I mean, you're looking at you know basically take what you thought you knew the number was and add thirty percent, um, and that's kind of the way contracts have gone this off season. And I think it's probably going to go up, although I'm not concerned. You know, I know the Cardinals don't have a TV deal coming up right away, but I'm never concerned about the Cardinals' revenue because, I mean, it's, it's so tied to the city. I mean, maybe more so than any other. Green Bay with the Packers is the only other place that comes close to the way that the, the kind of community is involved with the team. I, you know, I think I, I wouldn't worry at all about that. I don't think... We're talking about you know twenty five million dollars a year. I would be stunned if the number were four and eighty for Wainwright. Um, to me, it's probably more you know um, in the, between seventy and seventy five. In the end, is where you get to, which is still a significant amount of glue. But I, you know, it, it's I, I don't see him as being a twenty million dollar a year pitcher. And I think if that's what his demands are, one. You wouldn't hear this nice talk from both sides about, hey, you know, this is going to work out and, you know, we're not setting deadlines. And because I think both sides know, especially with him coming off an injury in the RA near four, that, that, you know, that those are, that those are, you know, unrealistic expectations going into this. Um, and, and two, I think if it were to get to $20 million a year, the Cardinals would just walk away from it. Because they don't seem wanting to commit to that. I mean, they're, this is not a small market team, but it's one with, finite resources, and it's one with a really smart general manager who's not going to get trapped into paying a 36-year-old starting pitcher $20 million bucks. If it, it, it's, it's just not going to happen. And so I think that that's a, you know, something that you have to keep in mind with it, too, is that you know, just based on the nice talk so far, they had to have at least had you know, an idea of what parameters are, and I think that they're, both sides are really comfortable with where it's at. You read between the lines, and it's kind of like arbitration, right? One comes in at 16 the other comes in at 18 and they figure we're close enough right right yeah well i like that yeah (laughs) all right let's get really broad here nl central for 2013 um obviously josh and i have got the cardinals pegged at the top of the division and uh there's no talking us out of it but uh we're interested to hear your feedback I, you know, you want to know what my biggest question is with the Cardinals coming into the season? Because I think their bullpen's pretty good. And obviously, offensively, it's a really good team. And when Tavares comes, watch out. Because I just, I can't wait to see Tavares. <laughs> Big leagues. He's just at, like, near the top of the list of the guys I'm most excited about. How are they going to replace Kyle Loesch's innings? You, well, he's still unsigned. Well, and, and that's the thing. You know, I might Nick, feel- Nick, don't go there, Nick. Please, don't go if, if Loesch comes back for two years, you know, you talked about Carpenter. Let, let's let's play this out, right? If Carpenter decides to walk away after the year, and he's 38. I mean, there's no reason. He may want to go back to New Hampshire, and I don't know, what do they do in New Hampshire? I mean, break granite. Whatever, whatever you know, Chris Carpenter wants to do with his free time. Go to Florida and, you know, big game fish with Roy Halladay, whatever it is. Wrestle anacondas. <laughs> it's, you know, Chris Carpenter is a man, and you don't want to mess with him. That's, I've learned that. Uh, <laughs> the... The thing is that you're going to lose those innings there. And Loesch is, what, 34? You know, he's been a really good pitcher for the Cardinals when he's been healthy. I mean, the last two years, he's been outstanding. And one of the things, and I I don't know how you guys feel about this, because I know you you guys are numbers inclined as well. But one of the things that I think gets really underrated 
is innings out of your starting rotation. And I think part of it is because it has an impact on not just the rest of the starters, but it has an impact on the bullpen. And it doesn't just have an impact on the day you pitch. It has an impact on the day before and the day after. And so for me, you know, losing those 200-plus innings of Kyle Loesch is a really difficult hole for the Cardinals to fill right now. I mean, do you guys expect Jake Westbrook to do the same thing that he did last year? I don't. Okay. You know, Lance Lynn was a great story, and I like Lance Lynn a lot, and I think he's a solid, like, number four starter in the big leagues. I think he's going to be a good pitcher, you know. Wainwright's probably going to be better. What's Jaime Garcia this year, coming off the shoulder injury? My expectation for Jaime Garcia is anything over zero innings pitched is a bonus. Okay, so so if you're expecting zero, if zero's your baseline for Jaime Garcia – then Shelby Miller's already your fifth starter, and then there's no starting depth. And that's where the problem comes in. You know, they've talked about wanting to use Rosenthal maybe in the rotation, maybe in the bullpen. Same with Joe Kelly, you know, that they kind of see them as swing guys. I, Rosenthal, I would be real tempted. As much as you want to, I, you know, I was a guy who, like, really liked Texas moving Feliz back to the rotation because he obviously had the stuff to be able to do that. With Rosenthal, it's just so easy out of the pen, and he's not going to throw 97 as a starter. He's not going to throw Nine as a starter, he's not going to throw 100 as a starter. So maybe you leave him in the bullpen. You're starting to eat away at your depth a little bit, and it's the one thing I don't feel like they've addressed. I thought Joe Blanton was going to be the kind of guy that would be the perfect fit for them, right? He just screams Cardinal Reclamation Project, and then he got 50 <laughs> for two years, and you're going, whoa, you know, this is out of whack. So maybe Loesch comes back in, fits in, and if that's the case, then I feel a little bit better about their rotation. But I have questions about it and the number of innings that they're going to be able to get him because on top of it, while Miller is extremely talented, while Rosenthal is extremely talented, while I think Joe Kelly has some you know, potential in that, I'm not sure what you're going to get in terms of innings. And that is where I think they fall behind Cincinnati. Cincinnati's got a very good lineup. Their bullpen, there's going to be questions at the back unless Chapman goes back into the bullpen because I think everybody's always going to have a question about Jonathan Broxton until they see him close game seven of the World Series. I think that's just, that's just going to be what follows around Jonathan Broxton. It's become, whether it's warranted or not, it's become the narrative about it. So you're going to have that question about Cincy, but their offense is much better with the addition of Shinsu Chu, that guy is a really good player, and him hitting at the top of that lineup is going to have a big impact on the rest of the hitters there. They're going to get Billy Hamilton up at some point, who I think is going to you know, continue to figure it out offensively and defensively, and I think has a chance to make an impact, if not this year, you know, then certainly down the line. But they're in a good position for this season. And I think the Cardinals are just a step behind him. But I, I don't I, you know, I really don't think that there's anybody else that's close to them in the division. I think Pittsburgh, you know, as good a story as they've been the last two years, you know, Francisco Liriano is going to be getting the ball probably 60 times if he stays healthy over the next two seasons. And if you can tell me what Francisco Liriano is going to be, then I'm going to Vegas with you. Because the, while the stuff is still really good, there's just been no consistency out of this guy for eons. You know, the Cubs are 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 – I mean, they're going to lose close to – I would say that they're probably going to lose 90, 95 games. Yet again, if Milwaukee has no depth in the rotation beyond Gallardo, who's a very good pitcher, and they're going to be a very good offensive team, even with Hart out for a couple of months. You know, They're a team that you don't necessarily want to play, but I think they're the one that you can win a lot of 10-9 games against. So it's the Reds and the Cardinals, and I think the Reds are a better team than St. Louis is right now, but I think St. Louis is certainly in the mix 
you know, for, for being a playoff team in the National League. And you, know, you saw what happened last year. The first time there's a one-game playoff. You know, they made it to the LCS. They were one win away from the World Series again. And I don't think that there's – you know, it stinks having to play that extra game. But while I don't think they're as good as Cincinnati, I definitely would put them on that short list of seven, six, seven teams in the National League that have a really good chance of going to the playoffs. Mike, you mentioned uh, John Mosaic earlier in our conversation, and that's a, a, a great point bringing up the, the depth and, well, the perceived depth, I should say, because personally I, I just want to see what Chris Carpenter is going to be, not maybe February or March, but what you're actually going to see in April from him. But are you in the, the, the same group that a lot of us are thinking that Mosaloc is eventually going to have to deal from his strength down in the minors, and this might actually be one of those times that, given the new arbitration rules, the new draft pick rules, everything, if there's a starter out there to be had, do you see the Cardinals actually packaging some of that depth and maybe actually making a move to try to capitalize on uh, Beltran and, and for Carl and the rest of the group to try to make it back to October? Yeah, I mean, I think in season they definitely – could be in that spot. I think it's a great point, Josh, and I think it's one of the things that if they don't bring in, you know, Lush again, that that gives them a chance to to be able to evaluate as the season goes on. Once they get a feel for these kids and that they got their feet wet, I will say this: I think that they would be willing to move players from within their system as long as what they got back was controllable, and that's going to be the key. It, you know, how do you find that guy that's got you know three, four years of control left? That's a starting pitcher that think you can trade for him. You know, who is that guy? Where do you find that guy? It's got to be on a team that's out of contention. They're probably not going to give it for a rental, and they're probably not going to give it for a guy like, you know, Cliff Lee, you know, say the Phillies fade, um, that's going to cost them, you know, uh, not just prospects, but a lot of money on top of it. They'd be very shrewd in making a deal like that. Chances are they're going to be creative in trying to find a way. You know, let's see what happens with Arizona. If they, you know, do deal up, then they get a starter back. Maybe a guy like Ian Kennedy becomes a guy who's in play over the course of the season, who's you know kind of like a cardinal pitcher. Right? I mean, this is a guy who's a sinker baller, pitching the mid of rotation, and is controllable. And they have some higher end arms that are in their system in Arizona. You know, that, there's a lot. There are a lot of guys that could fit that bill, but I, I don't see them going and giving up any of the guys that are well regarded their system for somebody who's a one-year fix. And I really don't see, you know, some of the top names. I mean, Tavares isn't going anywhere. Tavares is going to, you know, when Beltran is gone, Tavares, I wouldn't be surprised playing center field at some point this year, and then he's the right fielder for, you know, the foreseeable future um, in St. Louis starting next season. Colton Wong is going to be the second baseman, if not by the end of the year, then opening day in 2013. Those are guys that just are, I don't think are going anywhere. Matt Adams, you know, he's kind of blocked by Alan Craig. I mean, really, you're going to give up the wrench at this point? I mean, the guy's got one of the best approaches with men on base in the National League. To me, it doesn't make any sense to to move that guy. So maybe Matt Adams becomes, you know, the guy you can move as a trade chip if he can recoup some of his value and if you can get past, you know, scouts who don't like the fact that he's a big dude. So, you know, I think that that's kind of where you start to see it. And certainly they have, you know, pitching prospects beyond that, you know, Carlos Martinez and whoever else they want to try and put in that mix. They, they could make moves from that. But I, I can't see it unless they're going to get someone that they can control for a number of years. 
All right, I want to bring this back to Kyle Loesch for a second. Just real quick, let's handicap it. Because I have my own internal opinion about the the restrictions now with another team signing him and what that means under the new CBA with the draft pick rules and all that. Real quick, let's handicap it. What do you think the odds are that the Cardinals wind up bringing him back? Just on a short-term deal. I mean, do they have the budget to be able to spend, I think, is where it comes in. I mean, I, I don't I don't know that they're the favorites for him, but I'm not sure that you can put an odds on favorite at this point. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'd say maybe there's a, you know, if if you're going to rate it, you know, a Cardinals versus the field, maybe 20% versus the field. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's tough for me to try and put, put a quantifiable number on that. I mean, we were trying to go over this today. Well, especially because Scott Boris is involved. Well, you know, but... The, so, <laughs> The free agency, though, remember, you know, he didn't sign with the Cardinals until the middle of March. I mean, it was like March second when he signed, right? right. So, you know, this isn't the first time that he's gone deep into the offseason either. It's because he's a tough guy to value because he doesn't miss any bats and gives you a lot of innings and gets a lot of ground balls. And there's value in it. There is value in that. I'm not sure that there's thirteen million dollars a year value for three or four years. It depends on what you know the player is asking for too. And if you see it happening, continuing with the player, you have to wonder if it's out of whack with with what you know Boris is trying to get for him. What the player wants is maybe a greater demand too. And I don't know that. I love Kyle Loesch as a person uh, as well. So I mean, you know, he's a guy that I'd love to have on the team. But you start to look at who's got budget left, and it's like Atlanta has some flexibility. Texas certainly has flexibility. Seattle has financial flexibility, and that's about it. And you know what? If the Braves get up, then then Loesch and Bourne are the two free agents that are left, and there are two teams that have the financial flexibility to be able to add a ten-figure season contract, the way things stand right now, unless you're able to get a guy on a one-year deal and bust the budget. And I think some teams are way overvaluing the picks at the bottom of the first round by not being willing to give them up to sign a guy that can help them win this year. I mean, remember, if you're at the bottom of the first round, you're a team that was in in the playoffs or in the playoff mix last year. But at the same time, you know, I'm not sure that that I want to commit beyond that. And at least the Cardinals don't have to give up that draft pick. And I don't think two years of Kyle Loesch or two years with an option are a bad thing for St. Louis if they want to bring him back. It's just a matter of whether or not they can fit it into the budget. Well, but how much for other teams is it really about that draft pick versus having that bonus pool? And I think that's really the hang-up now, right? It's not the pick, it's the money. Well, I, I think it's a little bit from, from column A and a little bit from column B. Yeah. yeah, I want the flexibility that the, that the money gives you to be able to you know sign whoever you want. But I mean, at the bottom of the round, you're talking about what an extra million bucks. You True. know, it, it's you know, you're going to space that out. What are you taking at the end of the round? And in the end, you know, is it, it becomes more a matter of value, right? So, what is the perceived value of a guy you have in your system that has, and I, you know, I don't have the draft in front of me, but let's just say the 25th pick, right? I don't even know. You guys may know the Cardinals may have the 25th pick for all I know. But let's say the 25th pick in the draft, what's that guy's value, perceived value on the trade market even, you know, come a year from now, as opposed to, you know, what it is the value of signing a free agent who's going to be on your big league roster and, and getting into his mid-30s over so I think it goes beyond just the money in terms of the evaluation, but I do think it's you know I think it's a factor in it. But you know again, I mean it's it, it's a bigger factor. You know, it's a bigger factor for a team like the Mets that's picking eleven, right? 
you don't want to give up three million bucks or whatever your signing bonus totally is there. If you're at the bottom of the first round and you're getting a million one and your pool's going to be you know six million or whatever anyway, you know maybe maybe it's not so bad to pass on that, especially in the end. You know your job's to win the damn thing. <laughs> you're you're going to play that and put you over the top. Win the damn thing. Don't you know let the let the finances be damned a little bit. If you win, you're going to keep your job, and then you can you know, play for money in next year's draft. Or you just take the penalty for going over over budget, right? What a horrible system they created. It's, <laughs> it's so restrictive. Don't even get me started on international. Oh, it's just it's, – it's, uh, I don't like it. Do not like it. All right, we won't. <laughs> That's another time. That's, a That's call. another time. So – I, I want to close with this, and uh, we mentioned him a little bit earlier, and Kevin has been a good friend of our site and was on our podcast previously, and we thank you again for joining us, and I know that you've got a history with Mr. Goldstein. From your experience, how lucky are the Cardinals that the Astros have moved out of their division with Mr. Kevin Goldstein at the helm of the scouting department of the Houston Astros? Well, you know what? This is, and I, you know, I, you can even send this clip to Kevin because I can go on the record saying this. At the end <laughs> of the first year as a pro scouting director, his record is going to be something like sixty and one hundred two. <laughs> in the in the short term, um, I don't think it's it, it's a good thing. Certainly, that they're not going to play them eighteen times a year. I listen. Beyond just Kevin, I mean, you guys know what Jeff Lunov did there, and the credit that Jeff received, you know, running the farm book department, scouting director. They have a really smart front office, and they have a really versatile front office that understands new and old. Um, yeah, I'm biased. Kevin is one of my really good friends, and I'm a much bigger Astros fan than I ever have been because I want to see him have success in that job. They are lucky to have him because he's a good evaluator of people. And he's, a, he's going to be, a, I think, a very good evaluator of talent, and he's going to listen to the people that have the most experience at making scouting decisions. And, you know, while he's versed in the numbers, he's a scouting guy at heart in terms of, you know, well, who he trusts, who he believes in. It's, it's about guys having eyes on things, and they have some very good scouts that are working under him. Um, you know, they're, they are lucky to have them in and it's, um, you know, I don't know if it's, I don't know if you're ever lucky to be out of the division. I, I would say the Astros are luckier to be out of a division with the Cardinals. I think any team would be out of, lucky to be out of the division with the Cardinals because how often are the Cardinals ever bad? I mean, it's, it's fun to talk about the Astros and, you know, dream on it and the idea that, you know, this is the new world order and everything's going to be fantastic with them. But the fact is, is that the Cardinals have been doing it for a hundred years and they've been doing it really well. And if anybody had a chance to not have to play them 18 times, I think that's the team that's lucky. Because in the end, they're the class of the league, you know, top to bottom. So, Mike, basically what you're saying is uh, we can thank you later for calling the Bud Norris to the Cardinals trade later in the season. <laughs> you know, the best part of that for the Cardinals is that they would never have to face Bud Norris. <laughs> I, I mean... Bud the stud, just he's got a Chuck Norris quality to him. It's unbelievable. All right, Mike. Uh, as is our uh, usual, we'd love to talk to him for a half an hour, and we're pushing about an hour. So, um, thank you for your time. 
we'll let you go. Mike Farron is a co-host on the Power Alley show on MLB Network Radio on Sirius XM Radio. Uh, for the St. Louis folks, it runs from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Central Time every weekday. Mike, anything else you want to plug, please feel free. Yeah, I mean that's that's what uh, that's what we do every day, and uh, I, I'm lucky to work with Jim Duquette, who's a real life hero. Um, you know, he was the, the you probably read the stories this summer about him donating his kidney to his daughter Lindsay, and yes. uh, guy and a, and a great guy to work with, and he's worth listening to. I just get us in and out of break. <laughs> Very good. Well, once again, Mike, we thank you for your time. We'll let you go. Appreciate you talking with us about the Cardinals and and what we live every day during the summer and most falls. And uh, we look forward to listening to you on Sirius XM continually. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to catch up with you again uh, maybe during the season. It's been my pleasure anytime, guys. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Have fun in Boston. (laughs) Thanks. And this is Josh and Nick, the Pitcher Said Eighth Podcast. Another big thanks to Mike Farron, Sirius XM, Power Alley. He was an, an awesome guest to, to jump back into this. And Nick, honestly, uh, the one thing I just wanted to throw to you is what Mike brought up with the depth of the starting pitching for the Cardinals. It does give me a little bit of pause about the fact that Kyle Loesch is still available out there. I'm just curious. I'm sure you've, you've heard some of the, uh, the quotes and, and maybe some of the, the radio shows the same as I have that to me, I won't put it in the, the Albert Pujols category, but it really kind of seems to me that, that Kyle is, uh, not very happy that he has not heard at all from John Moselock and company. And I was curious to get your take on that. You're right, I have seen those things, and I'm not sure. Obviously, it's hard for any of us to really know what's going on in in Loesch's brain, but I don't know that I read it necessarily as anger or disappointment or, or otherwise just as telling facts. I think it it was probably pretty clear to him as he ended his 2012 season coming off of a big contract, coming off of a big year and really a a solid two years to end that contract that with the young talent coming up, with the Cardinals in the position that they're in with various contracts expiring and the contracts that they already have on the books, it wasn't really in the cards for him, no pun intended, to get a big extension from the Cardinals. Now that they've ten, maybe he regrets now not signing that one-year, thirteen million dollar tender that the Cardinals gave him. I don't know, but that was that was going to be my next question to you. Looking at what Soriano signed for, you know, how close do we have to get to start a spring training where he goes, hmm, <laughs> you know, I. He, well, he, he can't sign it anymore now. No, yeah, I, but he's always firmly been in the 
the support of Boris, you know, super agent. So, you know, maybe there is a, a deal out there. But when Mike mentioned the two teams that seemingly have space left to sign somebody, you can't help but think that those teams are, are trying to see what, how long it's going to take before uh, Scott Boris comes to them or vice versa. And, and you know, what kind of deal is Kyle going to get at that point? Well, sure, it's a chess match at this point, and I think that if it's true that the Cardinals have not, to this very minute, been in touch with Boris or Loesch at all, I think it's probably very safe to say that they're monitoring the situation closely. If there became a situation that on a one-year or two-year deal they could bring Kyle Loesch back in uh, reasonably, I don't think there's any way that they they could turn a blind eye to that. Now, again, this is just my opinion. Um, I think that, and, and I, I, I'm not sure I could even put a dollar amount on it, but if it came to that point, he had no other suitors. He's got limited options. Surely there's some element of being comfortable with where you are or where you've been and being able to get acclimated to the idea of, okay, I'm not going to get another huge $40 million plus dollar deal. I'm going to get what, I'm gonna, what I can, and I'm going to be happy where I'm at. Maybe I'm oversimplifying things. I have a tendency to do that. But I, I'm still not convinced that this market isn't going to come back to the Cardinals. Uh, ultimately, I, you know... Kyle's gonna take the best deal, and you know it, it was not very long ago that Kyle Loesch, or well, maybe it, it seems like a long while now after the last five years, but you know it, he definitely was not on the radar, and it wouldn't surprise me that if he doesn't get an offer he likes, that he might not sign until March again. I, I have a hard time looking at the big picture and thinking that's going to happen, but you know he he did a lot in St. Louis when he was healthy as our esteemed guest pointed out and at this point it's he said he hit it on the head nick it's january 23rd and there's still a lot that can happen before even pitchers and catchers report not much i can add to that josh plenty plenty of off season i guess yet to be had plenty of spring training again it was into march until loesch signed with the cardinals originally way back when so i'm certain that he's prepared to wait it out again and who knows what the market will hold yeah you know nobody expected what happened last year or actually the two the last two years with cardinal pitchers so you know somebody's going to show up to spring training either in you know sunny florida or sunny arizona and uh, uh, scott boris is not going to have a uh, a lot of downtime on his cell phone i think with both michael Bourne and kyle loesch still on the market which is probably just the way he likes it <laughs> that's true uh that's that's very true nick it's been it's it's been a heck of a return buddy Absolutely. It it wasn't too uncomfortable. And I think we have Mike Farron from SiriusXM to thank for that. Uh, uh, just a great segment with him. Really appreciated his thoughts on 
Stan Musial and uh, and what the Cardinals have got going on going forward. Again, huge thanks to Mike Farron. Appreciate all his time. Look forward to doing this again soon, Josh. Very soon. I'm I'm already uh, plotting who we can uh, who we can get next. Very good. With that, we'll close it out. This has been the Pitchers Hit Eighth Podcast, episode number twelve, and maybe we'll get you episode number thirteen without an eight or nine month delay. Thanks for listening. Please continue reading pitchershiteighth.com. He's Josh. I'm Nick. We'll talk to you soon.